Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights Podcast, where we talk about interesting recent work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Okay, today our guest is Jonathan Kammerfeld, who uh, finished a PhD at Berkeley with Dan Klein about a year and a half ago. And he, since then, he's been a postdoc at the University of Michigan. His thesis work was on graph parsing. He's currently developing a conversational academic advisor. Jonathan, it's great to, to have you with us. Thanks for having me. So today we'll, we'll talk about uh, your recent tackle paper called Parsing with Traces, and I guess a big O, end of the fourth algorithm, and a structural representation. This was, uh, I guess you were just telling us this was the core of your thesis work? Yeah, that's right. So this is sort of the large chunk that really uh, was half the thesis. Um, and so I wrapped it up and then it was published at Tackle, but presented at EMNLP a couple of months ago. So the title is Parsing with Traces. What is a trace? Right. So uh, first, I should say a disclaimer. I am not a linguist in any sense. I took a couple of courses during my PhD, but that's it. So I'm sure there are technicalities to the definitions that I will not get right. But the general idea is that traces capture some aspect of movement within a sentence that we don't see in the surface form, but linguists believe is there. And to make that concrete, if you take an example, like, I like books, very short sentence, and then you think of if we convert that into a question, you know, what do I like, you could interpret that transition from the statement to the question as being that books was converted into this WH phrase, and then the WH phrase moved to the front of the sentence. And so in the question form, what do I like, there's this trace of that movement from the front at what to the end um, as an argument of the word like. Uh, now, that's a pretty simple example, but it can get sort of arbitrarily complicated. I could do a similar thing with um, Waleed thinks that Matt uh, believes that Jonathan likes books and change that into what does Waleed believe that Matt thinks that Jonathan likes? And you still have this trace. It's just going right across the entire sentence. So the idea of this is to capture that movement um, and sort of express it in the structure of the parse. But, but wait a minute. Uh, if I'm like a new PhD student, maybe the only thing I've heard of is dependency parsing. So it, right. it, don't, don't you just get this whole tree? Like what... Where does this movement even show up? Like, how do you how do you annotate this? What are you talking about? Right. So, uh, yeah, so depending on which formalism you've grown up with, you'll see different things here. Um, actually, every formalism for, you know, syntactic representations, and apologies to linguists here, maybe not every, but uh, have some representation of this. So if you look at universal dependencies, which have these arcs between things, they're right now adding what they call our enhanced dependencies, which essentially create graph structures. And the thing that turns into a graph is adding these kinds of arcs that show sort of long distance relations. Um, if you look at the Stanford dependencies or other dependency schemes, there are decisions they make about which dependency to keep from the graph structure. Now, of course, that begs the question of what graph structure am I talking about? And most of the sort of uh, standard dependencies people think about uh, come from the Penn Tree Bank, where it was originally a constituency representation, and there they sort of drew them uh, explicitly in the structure as part of the overall syntactic representation. Um, and then when you do the conversion dependencies, 
usually you throw away those bits and say, well, we're just going to get the structural part of the uh, parts. Yeah, I guess if, if you're confused about what we're talking about here, I would say definitely just look at an actual pen tree bank parse. Go look, right. at the, go look at the data and you will see sentences where there's this crazy blank that um, linguists think should be there. For, there are good reasons for it, but uh, you don't see this in the dependency parse. Yep, so great. And nice I'd idea. also add to that, um, one thing you find, there are all sorts of null phenomena that occur in the tree bank. So it's not just traces like this, you get all sorts of other things going on. And the standard step going back to you know Collins parser in the 90s was remove those from the parse structure and now get on with your parsing algorithm. So step one was always throw them away. And essentially, uh, you know, I'll be, what we'll be talking about is how I say, well, let's not throw them away. Let's try to actually retain them. Why did people throw them away in the first place? So the problem these structures introduce is that they make your parses uh, complicated in a very particular way, which is that they break independence assumptions. So one of the things that makes parsing efficient is we can make these very strong independence assumptions that say the structure inside a noun phrase is independent of the structure outside it. Or for dependency parsing, if you consider any arc, the structure underneath that arc between the words it covers and the words outside it are independent. Now, once you have these non-local trace uh, connections, those independence assumptions break. So as a starting point, when we're looking at algorithms, it was convenient to say, let's not worry about them. Let's try to get the core structure first. So how does the dependency parsing uh, formalism avoid this problem or does it? So generally they avoid it uh, just by not including it. So the dependency parse is a tree and it leaves out edges that would have created a graph structure. Um, now, there is a decision of which edge you leave out and either you keep kind of a structural edge, which means you get this nice projectivity, um, or you keep the trace edge, in which case you lose projectivity but keep the tree. So people have tried different ways of doing this, and in some languages there's no way of escaping um, that non-projectivity, but uh, yeah, at the end of the day, they make a decision and throw away part of it to get a tree. And so what your work wants to do is instead of just giving us a tree structure, either a constituency parse that's removed traces or a dependency parse that is inherently just a tree, what you want is to, to parse a sentence into a graph structure that preserves these trace or null elements that linguists say are there. Exactly. So how, yeah. to, how actually before we get to how you want to do this, maybe we should talk a little first about why. Why should we care? Like what, what could you, if you could recover the structure, what could you do with it? Right, so I should note uh, one thing, you know, we've been talking about these structures, but to give a sense, they're pretty rare in a sense. I mean, you know, 50% or so of sentences have them, but there'll be just one edge in the sentence out of, you know, 20, 25 edges. So in terms of their overall percentage of edges in the overall structure, they're not many, but they often encode really useful information. So, you know, I don't be judgmental, but the edge linking the to whatever the noun is, it's not such an exciting edge, but the edge linking the verb to one of its arguments is really interesting. And that's often what's being thrown away because you have this argument that's null for some reason or moved. So it's, it's this case of uh, potentially we're losing representation of predicates in the structure. And 
essentially any downstream task in NLP may find that useful. So if you think about uh, information extraction, we're just not capturing all of the relations. If you think about um, you know, question answering, uh, we're not able to structure our question as, as directly and, and uh, we have to implicitly get the question being asked. Yeah. Um, yeah, so on the Aristo project here at AI2, uh, some people built by hand a system that takes a declare, a, a, an interrogative question that has this WH phrase and tries to undo WH movement. So let me back up a minute. So we have multiple choice questions where you have a question plus some candidate answer. And what we really want to do is have a declarative sentence that we can decide if this is true or false. And then you can score these multiple choices against each other that way. But to, to get a declarative sentence, you have to undo this WH movement. Right. And right. that actually is, maybe you could write, you can write down some rules that get you part of the way there, but there are some complex things. And if you had a trace that just told you where the WH word was, it would be a whole lot easier to, do, to undo this movement. Right. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. And I mean, that is sort of what we're recovering here, though, of course, it's not easy to recover the trace either. So this is why the task is uh, not straightforward. Um, yeah. And um, just another to give one other concrete example for information. You mentioned information extraction. Um, coordinate structures, like uh, if I have an and, you want, you want to tell us what's going on with this kind of structure? Right. So I'll just read through the it's uh, not a complete sentence. This is just a chunk. So cooked soup today and curry yesterday. Now, what's going on here is that whoever is, is saying this clearly cooked two dishes and they're telling you they cooked one on a certain day and the other on a different day. And we kind of have this problem where we have to say, what should the arguments of cooked be? And I mean, dependency uh, representations always get into trouble when it comes to conjunctions because it's unclear what the head of the uh, structure should be. And what the traces allow us to do is say that, well, cooked actually takes two uh, arguments here. You know, uh, soup is functioning as one of the arguments, but also curry is acting as an argument. And they're, they're both allowed to do that. Um, and at the same time, we're going to say that this whole uh, conjunction, uh, soup today and curry yesterday, is also kind of functioning as an argument. And with traces, you can encode all of that information. Um, but without traces, you kind of have to settle for one or the other, and you get stuck um, you know, leaving out some information. Or saying just the conjunction is the head, in which case you've got this weird thing where you cooked and. and what does even that, that mean? Yeah, and, and this leads to some interesting problems in information extraction. So right. if, you're, if you're trying to recover predicate argument structure uh, so that you can find like open, open IE relations or something that, that you can use for whatever uh, to fill slots or something with information extraction, you have to deal with these conjunctions. And right. it's easy to get it wrong. But if you had a trace, it would be a lot easier. And one other application um, that you know, I know less about but I think comes up is for machine translation, where in different languages, you have different patterns of what gets dropped from the sentence and how. And so you have this issue that in one sentence, something gets dropped here. And so you just don't have it in your input, but then you need to produce it on the output side or vice versa. Um, and if you had the sort of null elements and their relation to the rest of the sentence, that could potentially help you in the translation process. Yeah, that's a good point. Great. So, um, 
I guess we've talked about what we're talking about, why we might want to parse with graphs. Uh, your the, the paper is actually quite dense, and there's a lot of nice nuggets in there. Um, do you want right. to do, do your best to tell us how, uh, how, how you can do this parsing? Right. This is the scary part. Um, I suppose I would characterize this work as having a lot of little ideas which work together to achieve this goal of trace parsing. And it's tricky when you have lots of little ideas to sort of convey them in one hit. Um, and you need all of them for it to work. So I'll do my best. I think the starting place to think about this is if you go back to CKY, um, which is the sort of standard uh, parsing algorithm, and we think of the constituency parsing case, what you have is this table that represents at every point in the table a potential span of the sentence and what structures could be in that span. And what we do is we say, okay, if I take uh, items that span this chunk of the sentence and items that are adjacent, so spanning another chunk just to their, say, left, um, I can combine them to produce a bigger item that spans the whole chunk. And this gets back to that independence thing I mentioned earlier, where we can do this because we know that whatever's inside each chunk is sort of independent of what goes on outside. So we can do that optimization um, on each chunk uh, separately. So, okay, that's fairly straightforward. We have one rule. The rule says, take it two items that are next to each other, and the constraint is they have to be adjacent, and you combine them to produce a new item. At a high level, and what my... Oh, sorry, sorry to interject real quick. So just to be totally clear, this is something like, I have a rule that says S, a sentence, goes to the S then on terminal goes to NPVP. Maybe you, you would have seen this rule. And, and it's this rule that lets us join uh, adjacent structures, right? Exactly, yes. Okay. And though we have to be careful, so there are two types of rules here. So one type of rule is sort of a grammatical rule, like you just described, so S to NPVP. Now, I can also say that's X goes to Y, Z, and then X, Y, and Z you know, apply extra constraints because might have rules about what you're allowed to combine and what you're not allowed to combine. But at a high level, from an algorithmic perspective, it's just one type of rule that says you can combine two adjacent things to get a new one, um, and then you get these extra constraints from grammar. So now what do we do to get the graph case? Well, the problem we hit is that we want, say, our noun phrase to uh, have a link to somewhere else in the sentence. And so that independence assumption breaks, we can't do this nice uh, uh, decomposition. And the solution is essentially to make the items more complicated and then have additional rules for what uh, decides whether they can combine. So before I said the only requirement is that two items be adjacent. Now I'm going to say uh, my items, rather than just having one type of item that is just, it goes from word A to word B, I'm going to say it has all these other little uh, sort of flags on it that just describe its internal structure to some degree. And those flags go into a huge set of rules that say, can you combine two items? So it's essentially impossible to describe the set of rules uh even in a paper, even in a talk, you know, give me an hour on a whiteboard and we'll see how we go. Uh, but I would say the core idea, so which actually the core idea was not mine, it was something that I built on. Uh, this comes from Emily Pittler's work 
2012, one of the first tackle papers actually, um, she had this idea that rather than having a continuous span of the sentence be your item, you say, I'll have a continuous span plus one other point somewhere else in the sentence. And you are allowed to have your item contain edges from that point to somewhere in the continuous span. So this is pretty constraining. It's only letting you do certain types of structures, but it turns out it gives you quite a lot of flexibility. Of course, it then brings up this question of, well, okay, since I don't have just simple spans, how do I decide whether things can combine? And you get this whole set of rules saying that, you know, if you have uh, two continuous items, they can combine, but not if that external point is inside one of the spans. And in some cases, you can combine three items. And in that case, they have to obey these additional constraints. Um, and essentially, it turns into a huge number of rules about these structural properties. Um, but at a high level, we're still doing the same CKY thing. We're saying you start out at the bottom with just plain words and items with no uh, structure at all. And then you gradually combine them, except now we can combine three at a time sometimes uh, to get more and more sophisticated items. Um, now, the contribution of this work is to go from the tree case to the graph case um, and also to add certain properties like uniqueness um, to guarantee properties of the derivation. So uh, I don't know if I want to get into all of those right now, but that, at a high level, that's kind of what we're doing and it's, it's how it works um, in order to get a graph structure out. So it might be helpful to give um, <clears throat> the intuition of why, uh, why it makes sense to combine um, an item which has just one word external to it and uh, what does it mean for this to uh, to combine with an adjacent item in terms of the one endpoint uh, space? Uh, right. Okay, so yeah, I'll, I'll explain that. So the uh, one key idea that makes all of this work, and again, this comes from Emily Pittler's work and we've sort of built on it, is this idea of one endpoint crossing graphs. So when we think about dependency trees for a minute, um, the standard dependency tree you see is projective, meaning that none of the edges cross. What one endpoint crossing, as the name kind of implies, is we're going to consider structures that have crossing, but with a particular constraint. And the constraint works like this. Uh, imagine you have an edge, so let's call that E, so you have that edge in your mind. Now look at every single edge that crosses E, so you have some set of edges that set of edges, they all share one endpoint. So maybe they all start at word uh, 16, and then those edges go to words uh, 5, 7, and 9. Um, but they all start at word 16, and they all cross your original edge E. Um, that's a valid one endpoint crossing. Um, if that set of crossing edges have multiple endpoints on both sides, then it's not a valid one endpoint crossing uh, structure. So that is a uh, definition that you can come up with and then it constrains the space of graphs you're considering. Um, and uh, this algorithm, uh, both mine and the original from Emily Pittler, uh, say, okay, we're going to generate graphs from the space of one endpoint crossing structures. Uh, so now you can start to see maybe the relation between the uh, items I mentioned in this space in that our items 
have a continuous span and one external point. And in, if you think about this one endpoint crossing notion, that external point is the point shared by all of these, that set of edges uh, that go from there to somewhere in the sentence and cross your uh, edge E. Um, and so with these items, we're able to capture those structures um, and maintain that property of one endpoint crossing. Right. And I may add that uh, this uh, this part, the significance of this particular constraint is that it allows us to increase the coverage of the parse trees in, in the tree banks that we commonly use with uh, significantly to, to 97, is that uh, the right number? So the original work, uh, Emily Pitlers, was looking at trees and there we do see this dramatic increase in coverage across multiple languages into well into the 90s. Um, in our work, we're focused on English, and so I don't know exactly the numbers for other languages yet. Um, we're also able to get it up to around 97% or 98% with some additional tweaks. Um, and that requires uh, one additional step, which is that in our pen tree bank, we don't get dependency structures. We get constituency structures. So there's this entire second half of the paper that says, how do we take a pen tree bank parse and represent it in a way that this dependency parsing algorithm can handle? Um, so I don't know if we want to get into that just yet, but essentially that's the other key. If you naively apply um, the uh, this calculation to the graphs, you can get as coverage as low as sort of 70%. Uh, it turns out uh, you have to carefully choose that transformation from the pen tree bank to a dependency structure to get really high coverage with one endpoint crossing. What kind of coverage can you get over the pen tree bank if you don't handle any of these phenomena? Like if you just totally throw out null elements? Right. So in that case, you get 100%. Uh, so null elements are the entire source of any all of these woes. Um, without them, you get um, projective tree structures and all as well. Right, I meant I meant the other way around. Be because we're throwing that away, how much of the actual tree bank are we misrepresenting? Oh, I see what you mean. By throwing that away, we if you do it at a sentence level, we're losing about 50% of sentences. Uh, now, as I said, if you consider these arcs, they're only one per sentence or so. So as a percentage of arcs, it's actually extremely small, um, sort of three per three or four uh, percent. But of course, that you know, overall the sentences. So there, yeah, right. that's the trade-off. Interesting. So one thing I should add then about this representation question is it's kind of interesting to see what decisions impact this. Um, the mechanism we're doing essentially is you take the constituency parse and you say for every symbol in it, what is the head of that phrase? Uh, for some of these, it's pretty obvious. You know, the, the noun phrase, the noun is probably the head. For uh, a verb phrase, probably the verb. Places where it get tricky, uh, things like uh, subordinate clauses and in um, you know prepositional phrases and things like that. And some of those decisions are things that linguists actually argue about a lot. Um, and I don't know the details in, in, uh, in that, but for us, we could do this simple experiment and say, okay, if we set the head to be this or that, what happens to our coverage? Um, and a couple of things that came up, one was that if you use the auxiliary verb um, as the head, that creates a lot of one endpoint crossing violations. So instead you want the main verb 
to always be um, the head. Uh, and that, you know, sort of gives you 10% extra <laughs> coverage or something. Um, and the other thing is the use of complementizers. Uh, you know, setting them as the head also causes problems. So it's kind of interesting that there are these subtle distinctions that uh, have linguistic support for either perspective. And here we kind of have a, I don't know, a mathematical, I guess, argument uh, for one, at least if we believe one endpoint crossing is somehow a meaningful uh, representation of language, which I think is an open question as to whether that's the right structure. So are, just to clarify, are you saying that in the past when, uh, when we did this kind of conversion, we made decisions that are very practical and may ignore some of the linguistic uh, perspectives on how the conversion should work? Uh, and um, now I'm extrapolating a little bit and saying uh, maybe with this uh, with this parser uh, we can we can incorporate more linguistic input into the conversion process and say oh it does actually make sense to use the, the auxiliary verb as the head verb. Uh, so not quite. Um, again, I don't know the linguistics background in particular. I know. You know, for example, Stanford dependencies, there have been a bunch of different versions with different um, motivations for them. So I, I definitely am not an expert there. I suppose my thinking is more just this is another data point on this question of what should the head be. Um, one interesting thing is that I know, for example, in uh, Collins head rules, which are you know widely used, they made decisions mainly based on what improved parser performance. So they ran with you know two different versions, saw that uh, F-score went up with this one, so they kept that one. Um, for this to work, we have to undo some of those decision decisions. So we actually find that with our head rules, parsing is harder in some ways, uh, but we can cover more of the sentences. So it's this trade-off in kind of coverage versus accuracy. Um, of course, at the end of the day, we want both, and there's an entire modeling question this paper doesn't get into, uh, which would be a important direction for future work. Great. That was a nice high-level explanation of some really complex work. Uh, thanks for, for describing this. Maybe um, we can talk now about how well it works. Right. So in terms of how well it works, there are a couple of different factors here. So this paper is all about inference rather than modeling. So the numbers in terms of accuracy are not going to be stellar. Uh, I want to prepare everyone for that. Um, but the goal here was, is basically coverage. And in terms of coverage, you know, we get up to around 97% uh, of sentences. And that's 99.5% you know, of edges. So in that sense, it's a success. You know, we have this extremely high coverage of, of the structures we observe in the pen tree bank. Um, and from an algorithmic perspective, we've got this end of the fourth runtime. So that's nice. The problem comes in in that there's a very large constant out the front of that uh, big O notation. A lot is hiding in the big O. Um, in particular, the rules I mentioned, you know, essentially we had one rule for the original version of the you know, standard projective tree parsing case. And I said, you know, our items are more complicated, so we're gonna have more rules. If you expand them all out, you end up with about 50,000 rules. So You've got a factor of 50,000 sitting in front of that end of the fourth, which is not so nice. Um, it turns out also to have it work, you need to encode additional information on every on the ends of every item to say things about structural properties. So it's actually, uh, there's an extra term of S to the fourth, which is the number of uh, 
uh, structural, uh, you know, non-terminals on each word. And there are about a thousand of those. So, you know, we're looking at 50,000 times a thousand to the power of four times n to the power of four. So it's looking pretty dire. Um, so getting it to actually work uh, requires uh, a bunch of additional ideas. Um, one is those 50,000 rules are needed to cover the one endpoint crossing graph space. But it turns out that space is still much bigger than what we see in my, uh, actual English. So if you throw out all of those rules that aren't used during uh, the uh, generation of the gold structures, you get it down to something like six or 700. I can't remember the exact name number off the top of my head. Um, so uh, 627. So you can throw away a large number of those rules and still have full coverage over uh, the pen tree bank, um, which of course leaves open the question of, is there an even more restrictive space out there which could give us faster parsing? But setting that aside, uh, doing things like switching to those rules and uh, introducing pruning, uh, you can get that complexity down to the point where parsing is feasible, uh, looking sort of on the order of five to 10 seconds per sentence, which is obviously not fast, but fast enough to train something. Um, so that's sort of the inference side. The other side is accuracy. And here, uh, as I said, sort of we're running out of pages in the paper. So this is you know, the whole inference story. Uh, the model here is extremely simple. Essentially, it's a first order model uh, with a bunch of surface features. So this, by that I mean things like, uh, should there be an edge between these two words? And here are what the words are and their neighbors. Uh, we don't have any second order features, so this edge uh, connects these two words, and then that word is the parent of something else. So no features like that, just first order. And also, uh, we don't do any crazy uh, fancy um, neural modeling or anything. This is straight linear models. So with all those caveats, I'll now actually reveal the numbers. So we're getting 88 or so on the standard Pentry Bank section 23 for trees. So that's quite a bit lower than sort of the state-of-the-art systems but still reasonable. And state-of-the-art systems get like 92 on this metric? Right, so state-of-the-art systems get around 92. I think the best number I've seen anywhere is like 94 point something with a combination of neural models running for days and things. It's you know, very, very complex. So yeah, so we're a fair way off the mark there. Um, that's on the tree metric. Uh, looking at the question we're so interested in, this question of traces, um, as we mentioned, they're harder. So for that, we're getting around uh, 71 on, in terms of F-score. Now, uh, there is prior work on this, uh, and we're sort of in between the prior work. So uh, Mark Johnson had this system, which got about 68, um, and that was a post-processing system. So essentially, you run your standard parser, and then it takes the output and works on that. Um, and there's a more recent piece of work, uh, a transition-based parser from Kato and Matsubara, which gets uh, 78F1. So they're quite a bit ahead of um, this work. Uh, though there, the focus really was on modeling and having complicated um, uh, features of the transition structure and looking at uh, the whole tree to make these decisions. So I suppose my view is uh, on the modeling side, we're getting results that are in the ballpark of reasonable but there certainly seems scope for improvement. Just to be clear on the pen tree bank metric, 
you're producing a graph with null elements, and so to evaluate on the tree metric, you're doing the standard throw away all of the null elements before exactly. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And uh, one interesting thing actually is we can also run our parser with null elements disabled, of course. Um, you know, you leave out some rules. And uh, if we train with the head rules that are used for sort of the columns, uh, those head rules that I mentioned have higher accuracy but lower recall in this space, we gain back, um, you know, about 1 to 1 1.5 uh, points in accuracy. So, you know, clearly there is this modeling trade-off, and by making the design decisions we did to improve coverage, we've cost ourselves in accuracy. Interesting. So my last question then is, I hear a lot these days, I, I don't know quite what I think about this criticism, but I hear a lot of people say that syntax is dead. We have all, I, I, people have said this for a long time, I guess, and this has been an ongoing debate, but with, with the advent of bidirectional LSTMs and deep neural nets, it's getting louder again with people saying, why do we even need any of this stuff? We can just do end-to-end -end training to predict some end task. Uh, and here you are doing the opposite, saying, no, dependency parses aren't good enough. We need to go further down this linguistic rabbit hole, uh, that at least some people might call it that, um, and, and get these even more complex structures. So uh, what, what would you say to, to people who make these arguments? Uh, so I have a few, sort of, a few thoughts on that. Um, I mean, at a high level, I suppose my view is, you know, I'm a very empirical person. We'll see what happens, basically. Um, I think with many of these kinds of structures, uh, the fact that we haven't made them useful in a particular downstream task doesn't necessarily mean they won't be. It's just we haven't figured out how yet. So we'll see. Um, so that's sort of a high-level thought. On this particular work, uh, one thing I should mention, we've been very focused on syntax and sort of this particular syntactic representation. But the algorithm itself is actually pretty general. And when I started working on this, you know, originally, uh, I was working on AMR parsing, not uh, pen tree bank parsing. And the, you know, AMR is another case where you have graph structures, you have these re-entrances, which mean uh, you know you want to be able to get a, a complete graph. Um, and we see it coming up elsewhere. You look at you know UCCA, or if you look at you know the enhanced dependencies in universal dependencies. So I would say it's not purely syntax. This sort of algorithm has applications to any kind of structural case that has these kinds of structures, which applies to these semantic representations too. And then, of course, you could say, well, maybe you don't need AMR and you don't need any of those either. Um, yeah, I think the jury's out. I think uh, in all these cases, uh, obviously, a lot of people are working on it because it does seem to abstract away from the surface form of text in a way that could potentially be useful. Um, and it's a, a challenge to the community to figure out how to make them useful in these uh, neural network models where having a graph structure as input is a bit of a challenge uh, rather than some linear form. Yeah, I, I would say I'm, I said at the beginning, I wasn't really sure where I fall on this, but actually I think I'm pretty clearly in your camp where I think this is actually useful just to, give a, a little straw man example. Think of the undo, undoing WH movement example that we talked about earlier. Try to think about doing this in an end-to-end -end neural seek-to-seek -seek kind of model where your input is a question and an answer and your output is a declarative sentence. Doing a seek-to-seek -seek model 
means you need a bunch of labeled examples. Right. Whereas if I can just build a parser that knows how to parse questions and leaves a trace, I don't need any any labeled examples. I just I, any labeled examples of this transformation. I just need right. to know um, what the structure of a language is, and I'm done. And so actually, it'd be hard to get a, an end-to-end -end model here, where if you have a graph parser that does the right thing, it'd be a whole lot easier. Well, and going on that idea one step further, if you wrote you know, your system to do that, interpret the parse that way, you could then take it and apply it to other languages and have it work there too, because the work has been done in the in the parser to do the like language uh, variation and handling whatever structure that language has. So you know, that further suggests that maybe it'll be it'll be helpful in that way. Um, at the same time, you know, who knows what deep learning will come up with next. Uh, you know, a few, few years from now, maybe, you know, we'll just have some completely new architecture and, you know, words will go in and magic will come out the other side. We'll see. <laughs> and it, it, I guess we shouldn't, we should be a little bit, bit careful here. It's not really a dichotomy between um, structure and neural nets because in part of your right. work, you're using a BioLSTM to predict stuff. And, yes. and, and you, you could imagine using a neural net to predict this structure. It's just, is this intermediate structure helpful? No, that's a very good point. Yeah, that's very true. And and I, I think actually the next step uh, on this work, and I've mentioned a few times, there's sort of the inference piece, which is what this paper was about, and then there's the modeling piece. And I think the interesting direction to go would be to look at the modeling piece here and look at sort of neural network architectures for this uh, inference algorithm. And you can imagine things like an agenda-based parser, which then means you can build up more of the structure and use that um, in your in the sort of modeling stage. And actually, one thing I found, so the uh, neural uh, model you mentioned that was part of this, uh, the neural model that I used for pruning was more accurate than the linear one. So that's not a big surprise. And the nice thing about that is it improves speed because you can prune more. But it also improves accuracy because the pruning means you've got you know fewer things that could potentially be incorrect to choose from. So if we can make the modeling better, it will improve both speed and accuracy, which are the two places where I you know want to go further with this work. Great. Any any last thoughts before we conclude? Um, I suppose one thing on sort of a, a methodological point, which is uh, I don't know if this will uh, you know. I mean, it's good to talk about these things. So this work actually only got in on the third submission. So uh, I want to say, it, and it improved a lot in those three submissions, but you know, it was rejected twice and I had great angst and pain in, in that process. So, um, you know, I think uh, just a thought that uh, I've been quite happy with how it turned out. And I think if you have a paper you're working on for NACL this uh, coming up, um, you know, and it doesn't get in, don't lose hope. <laughs> Thanks. That we all need that encouragement because uh, the review process can seem pretty random sometimes. Right. Right. Thanks. It was nice talking to you. You too. Thank you very much.